The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are at a very interesting time in the China-Africa economic relationship, in part because there is this growing fear and this realization that China and the United States, the economic war that's currently going on, will not end anytime soon. And Africa is increasingly worried that it will be the collateral damage in between these two great powers. And there are there is some indications to suggest that that is the case. Commodity prices are in flux, and so many of the goods that Africa sells are dependent on global commodity prices. And when these two giants start fighting and persistently fight, it does have an impact on them as well across the continent. And there is this kind of gloom that's setting in, particularly in places like South Africa, where the RAND is so tightly aligned with what happens with economic news in China uh, and around the world. So it brings up this question of where are we right now in the China-Africa economic relationship? And let me put a couple dots on uh, on the chart here. There is this growing hope and optimism that China will be outsourcing more and more of its manufacturing to not only Africa, but to other parts of the world. And in part because manufacturers want to avoid the tariffs that are now in place and don't look like they're coming any time down anytime soon from the United States. So there's an incentive beyond just the cost of manufacturing in China. Now it's to avoid tariffs as well. There's also more manufacturing that's coming from China to Africa in the automotive sector, We're seeing growth in the technology sector, particularly in the private sector. So while there are reasons for concern, Cobus, there are also some really exciting developments that are taking place. What we're also seeing is that African countries are increasingly taking on some of the tools of Chinese economic development. So this is especially true for special economic zones. Um, There's, I think, uh, for example, in South Africa, there's nine special economic zones already running, um, and several more are being planned. And what's interesting is that only some of them are actually being financed by Chinese entities or are, are destined to house Chinese companies. Some of them are actually special economic zones set up for, for, for non-Chinese companies as well. So it looks like some of these kind of templates for development are being kind of taken over and Africanized by African countries. So when we talk about special economic zones, there are a couple different models that are out there. Number one is the special economic zone is this kind of industrial park. So you'll hear about the Hawassa Industrial Park in Ethiopia, and there are many others around the country, around the, the continent and around Ethiopia as well. And then there are, also, there are also these free trade zones and then special economic zones. So we're going to get into that today to see where are we. And just, just to qualify that, China loves special economic zones, but they are by no means the only country in the world that is doing this. And there are lessons now coming into Africa from all over the world on how to manage these industrial parks or these free trade zones. China is certainly one actor among many. One of the people who is advising African governments on special economic zones, is Chung Chung. He is the chief economist at the Made in Africa Initiative, 
Uh, he's a longtime listener of the program, and we've been a longtime fan of his. In the academic world in China, he is very, very well known. And he's been active in China-Africa economic uh, affairs for a very long time, particularly in places like Ethiopia and working in special economic zones. And we are just so honored and thrilled to have you on the line and on the show for, for the first time from Beijing. Welcome, Cheng Cheng. Hello, Eric. Hello, Kobus. It's my pleasure. Oh, it's exciting to have you. And I, I think before we get started, I think it'd be worthwhile to introduce what is the Made in Africa Initiative, which is an international NGO co-founded uh, by the Chinese businesswoman Helen Hai. Now, if you recall, longtime listeners of ours, we interviewed Helen uh, many years ago, and she is known for the Huajian Shoe Factory, which is the famous big giant shoe factory that's in Ethiopia. Uh, she was the vice president of Huajian at the time and helped to found that factory. And then later, after she left Huajian, uh, teamed up with the United Nations Development Program to co-found uh, the Made in Africa Initiative, which aims at bringing private sector and traditional donors together to promote industrialization and sustainable in uh, manufacturing in Africa. So that's the Made in Africa Initiative, and Chung Chung is the chief economist there. Uh, Chung Chung, before we started the show, you mentioned that you are in the process of writing a column on the state of China-Africa economic relationships, both for an academic journal, but you're also going to be writing something for the People's Daily. And that got me thinking about what is the conversation that is happening in China, among Chinese, in Chinese, that is different than what you're reading in the West and in the English language media that so many of us follow. And so when you write a column for the People's Daily about the China-Africa economic relationship, what are you saying? To be honest with you guys, uh, for most of Chinese, Africa is still quite far away place. And uh, when people talk about, talk about Africa, uh, traditional people will think about going for trips, uh, going to do safari over there. Uh, perhaps they will hear some like mining company working in the continent. That's uh, like old type of knowledge or for most of Chinese. Uh, but recently, in a couple of in the past, uh, like five years, perhaps uh, things are starting to change. We start to hear that oh, there are so many Chinese doctors and nurses uh, working in Africa, helping local people uh, for like medical treatment as well as fighting uh, with Ebola. So that's news, and uh, we also get to know that a lot of new uh, like young Chinese uh, who working with either international organization or NGOs uh, advocate for development of Africa, for like uh, uh, poverty uh, alleviation, or for rural education, or for uh, like nutrition supplement, etc. And uh, the latest uh, news in China about China Africa is actually about like food uh, recently we start to find that if you go to a just simple market in Beijing uh, it would be much easier to find like uh, tangerines and uh, oranges from South Africa and uh, uh, we also start to import uh, beef from Namibia all this uh, very new experience for Chinese and getting people to like talk about it and uh, that's a kind of new thing uh, but still if you like surfing on the internet you can still find people talk about oh China will provide so much 
help for Africa, and、uh, people worry about our loans to Africa. That's basically what people like interested to talk about on the internet in China.、Um, as Eric mentioned、uh, at the top. You work closely with Helen High,、um, and your your your、um, Made in Africa initiative is you know is instrumental in in helping to to kind of funnel Chinese investment from、uh, to Africa. Can you give us an outline roughly about where in the continent、uh, the Made Made in Africa's initiative is is main is mainly focusing on, and what kind of industries are involved?、Uh, actually, we we're not specifically. We're not really helping Chinese investment into Africa. We're helping African governments to better、uh, position to receive、uh, investment from China. So our clients are actually African governments.、Uh, currently, we have ten African clients, five on the east, five on the west. Some of the projects we have already completed. Some of them are still going on.、Uh, we have、uh, projects. We have cooperation with Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda,、uh, very prospective、uh, one in Tanzania, and、uh, we also have pro-、uh, cooperation with、uh, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire,、uh, Togo, Senegal, and Nigeria. So that's basically our、uh, presence in Africa. So you have an opportunity as to work with your clients, these ten African governments, on attracting Chinese investment, and I presume also investment from other countries as well to improve the overall investment climate、uh, in those different countries. Now, a lot of people looking from the outside in、uh, hear this narrative coming from the United States about the debt trap, and they hear、uh, all of the things that it looks like African governments are being taken advantage of by the Chinese and are not making good decisions. Uh, and that's why people say, "Well, the debt is going up." And you see, particularly from Africa diaspora commentators on social media, there's a lot of commentary that these African leaders are corrupt, these African leaders are stupid, these African leaders don't know what they're doing. All of these different negative criticism, and that's a lot of what we hear, both from outside but also inside. As somebody who works directly with these African governments and the people who are in the decision making. Uh, responsibilities. What is your assessment? How are they making decisions? What's the thought process behind their engagement strategies with places like China? Well, it's it's a mixed、uh, experience and also uh, complicated. Uh, I may say that、uh, for most of African countries, is that、uh, especially those that didn't have a much experience working with China and、uh, the smaller, re- relatively smaller countries, they still, I have to say, got no clue how to work with Chinese and how to、uh, better sort it to the requirements and needs of 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 Chinese investors.、Uh, that's one thing. Another thing is.、Uh, You know, after the third wave of uh, uh, democratic uh, uh, movement, most of African countries have gone into like regulated uh, uh, voting democracy. And、uh, I have to say, just like their counterparts in the United States, what they concentrate the most、uh, is like the coming election next time. And when they think about Chinese investment, 
or loans or whatever, uh, the top priority for them is better is is how to use those investment and loans to better be suited for their uh, campaign agenda. So that's my experience. So, you know, on that point, um, in an interview um, you, you, I was listening to where you, you commented that um, that in you know that that you can need a kind of a long view um, in order to make special economic zones work. You know, you know, with the implication that that it, that it needs kind of longer term planning than than the kind of the, the the standard election cycle. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what what kind of time frames are we looking at in order to get an, a special economic zone to really thrive? Okay. Uh, yeah. That's, I'm afraid, is the biggest challenge for the SEZ uh, waves in Africa. SEZ is not a China thing. SEZ, just like uh, Eric was talking about, SEZ has never been a China thing. Uh, we have uh, uh, the World Bank uh, trying to do SEZ in Nigeria back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, we have all these Asian uh, tigers uh, trying to manage to, to achieve high-level uh, economic growth through SEZ development in the 70s, in the 80s. Uh, the common experience is if you truly want SEZ to work, uh, you cannot treat SEZ as a cash cow. Uh, and you have to understand uh, there is a there is a possibility that SEZ you are working on are not really going to work eventually because first of all, you need a concentration for one specific SEZ, right? And it means you have, you have tried to uh, channel all different kinds of investment into one specific sector in the SEZ, right? But the problem is sometimes those specific industries they're actually going down in global sense and may not really work in this SEZ. But there's a, that's a kind of a bet. Like you can have 10 different SEZ focused on different type of industries and you bet that they all work, but they will never, like, it's not possible that all of them are going to work. So maybe one or two of them will work but the return from this one or two uh, SEZ, uh, the, the return will make up all the investment and energies you provided and resources you provided for the all 10 SEZs. So that's how it works. Uh, for most of the SEZ, it will, it will actually take six to even 15 years to even make up the uh, uh, initial investment. That's, I'm afraid, uh, the experience we have learned from the past uh, uh, half century of doing SEZ in not only Africa, but also in ASEAN and East Asian countries. Now, that brings up a very interesting point because a lot of the nature of politics in Africa is short-term political. It's month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter, year-to-year. And that's why, in some respects, there might be a correlation between SEZs that work in non-democratic societies and those that work that don't work in democratic societies. For example, in Ethiopia, traditionally, for a long time, was not a democratic society. And I, uh, you know, it's, it's opening up a little bit now. But one of the reasons why is that it's a little bit like China, 
where the government says, we're going to do this, and then they commit to it for a longer period of time. And there is no outsider voice that comes in and says, well, maybe we don't want to do this. And so SEZs traditionally have worked well in dysfunctional societies where regulation was not stable, where taxes were very high or, or there was a lot of corruption. And the idea was that you would wall off this small part of the country and this park and say, okay, this will be duty-free. You will have good infrastructure in this park. This will be cut off from the rest of the country. And that's a model that, that appeals to a lot of com- uh, countries and companies as well. But it is it does require that time frame that oftentimes is in contradiction with the reality of contemporary African politics. And Kobus, I'd like to get your take on this here. Um, you know, when you look at the current political situation, and particularly in this era of social media, where in countries like Zambia and Kenya, uh, you know, governments are under enormous short-term pressure to make decisions. And then, of course, we have the issue of corruption and people making decisions to satisfy their own immediate political needs. In order for these SEZs to ever work and long-term economic planning to ever work, it has to be on a decades-long basis. Is that actually possible in the current economic reality and political reality in many parts of Africa? Um, whether it's possible, you know, that's a difficult question. What, what, what I think, you have a, f- a few different factors. One, one being the election cycle that we mentioned. The other being, being the frequently in, in, in particularly in the case of of some some Chinese developments, um, perceptions that that the negotiations and the deal making is quite opaque. Which then provides uh, the an opportunity for opposition groups to to use the deal as a as kind of a stick to beat the incumbent government with, um, you know, to say, look, you know, they're making all these shady, like behind the scenes deals with these, you know, with with these kind of foreign actors, um, and so so there is a chance that that these, this kind of development can be used. Um, by opposition groups against an incumbent government, especially if there's also if there's also issues around, for example, you know who originally owned the land where that special economic zone is now going to be built. You know, it depends very much on on how happy the the land acquisition process was and like how many people were displaced and you know and the particular kind of local issues. Um, so all of those have the potential to kind of to 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 flip and to turn against the the government that planned the initiative to begin with. That said, you know, employ- unemployment rates in Africa are very high, and and the promise that um, of stable employment counts for a lot. Um, so I think it, it, it a lot of it depends on the communication practices and how how the the um, the government and the companies. Kobus, let me interrupt you. Sorry, on this question of the employment, do you remember a couple of years ago we interviewed a re- a reporter for the Guardian? who said that there was a lot of employment at the Hawassa Industrial Park in Ethiopia, but the salaries were so low that people weren't actually making any money and people were turning against the Hawassa Industrial Park. So yes. employment's one part, but actual working conditions and salaries are another part of this. Well, well. of course, of course. You know, kind of, I mean, that, that's, 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 that's part, part of the equation. But in, a, you know, kind of in, in extremely depressed areas, Sometimes you know the the very fact of employment, even if it's very badly badly paid employment, does count for something. And I think in that in that case that that has in the longer run, I think we've seen that shake out in Ethiopia, where you know where despite Ethiopians being paid some of the lowest wages in the garment industry in the world, you know, making making kind of Bangladeshi workers look well paid in comparison. Um, you know, a, a lot of the many many companies are still kind of relocating there. You know, kind of so it does seem like they, they they are managing to to actually to 
to keep you know the factories full. Um, um, Chang Chang, I want to like to ask your comment about that. Actually, like how how are special economic zones in your experience? How have they been affected by local politics, and how has the wage issue particularly kind of affected them? That's a very good question. Uh, very important. Uh, I really, really like your perspective on SEZ in Africa. Ownership is another challenge away from like the 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 time frame we just talked about uh, for SEZ development in Africa. Uh, ownership is one of the critical uh, elements for SEZ to really work, uh, because to create SEZ, it's not just a like a trading facility. It's not only just some buildings and pounds. It's actually a, it's a, it's a, it's a collection of uh, both hard and soft inf- infrastructures. And uh, because it's too costly for the whole nation to upgrade their infrastructure, so instead they choose a small part of the country and that's needed uh, to make a better infrastructure, both hard and soft infrastructure in that park and to bring foreign investment, local investment into the park and hope it will work. Uh, the, the thing is, uh, because by soft infrastructure, sometimes it means you have to uh, provide uh, a lot of uh, uh, favor uh, in the form of uh, taxation, uh, re- uh, reaction, uh, and uh, like a one-stop uh, recession center, or all different things that like local company will not uh, 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 will, 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 will not have. So the question for the local government uh, is, what, meaning in most of cases, uh, the, the the question for local African governments would be. Like since it is a foreign entity going to make money in my country, why would I provide those much benefits for this entity? So if the ownership is not really, I mean, if the ownership of the park is not really in the hand of either African government or African companies, it will be very hard to persuade the local African countries to provide those uh, infrastructure, especially soft infrastructure in need uh, for those SEZs. And uh, that's the very important element uh, for SEZ. I suppose, you know, the the related question to this, um, you know, when you talk about soft infrastructure, I think the 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 logical question that comes after that in the case of, of African investment um, is the issue of skills transfer. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, in the case of, of Chinese companies, there's, they do a lot of training. Um, but at the same time, I think, I think African countries um, have been quite inspired, actually, by, um, by some of the, some of the ways that, um, that Chinese companies or China, China, the Chinese entities in China have managed to get foreign companies to transfer some technology and skills um, and technical knowledge to the local population. Do you see a similar kind of process of, of skills and technology transfer happening in the African case? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, I, I think on those things like uh, uh, China... Africa and perhaps India, all these developing countries, we share a, a, a common view that it is legit for the local government to ask foreign investors to do a skill transfer uh, in the host countries. 
And I, I fully agree with that. Uh, in, for, for, first of all, we have to define what is skill transfer. Uh, I will talk about my experience back in uh, the past couple of years. Uh, like, for instance, in Ghana, uh, West African country, Ghana. Uh, before uh, Chinese hydro uh, uh, construction company entered, uh, entered Ghana in the early 2000, uh, there was actually there was no like modern type of uh, uh, construction workers ever in Ghana, and uh, for the power plant built and financed by Chinese, uh, they actually trained uh, thousands of uh, Ghanaian workers and trained them in the like apprentice way how to do. Uh, construction uh, in a modern way. So in and and we 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 also uh, see in the Huawei case. Uh, I I listened to one of your episode a couple of days ago. You interview a PR uh, manager from Huawei, and I listened very carefully. Uh, Huawei also have all kinds of uh, a skill uh, uh, vocational training uh, programs uh, all over in Africa. So, so I guess that's the picture for uh, Chinese uh, skill transfer programs in Africa. Just a lot of, of those programs are not really being reported by the African media. For instance, about the Kenya SGR case. I, I don't know if the Canadian people or uh, the media knows that, uh, first of all, there were like 40-something uh, young Canadian uh, now uh, learning in China Northern Communication University, specifically be trained to run the SDR in the future. But it's a bachelor degree, which means it takes at least four years uh, to complete their degree and return to Kenya to, 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 work, for, uh, to work for SGR. Uh, and uh, I, I do believe uh, most of them graduated uh, this year and they start to going back to Kenya to serve their country. And uh, also, the university is, is, is thinking about uh, uh, to join with the University of Nairobi to start a new campus in Nairobi uh, to provide a modern type of uh, education for engineering uh, in railway system uh, to provide that, that kind of education in Kenya. So we can see all types of uh, uh, these kind of programs. Now, I think the issue, those are stories have all been reported by African press, Kenya, Ugandan press, and whatnot. I think the concern that a lot of people have is that this is not an equal relationship. I mean, the Chinese like to talk about win-win as if there are two equal partners here. But the asymmetry in the relationship does give the Chinese side a lot of leverage and, and, and sway over the relationship. But when you have a country like China negotiating with a country like Ghana – the, you know, and you said at the top, a lot of the the negotiators, particularly in the smaller countries, they don't have any experience in dealing with China and whatnot. And when China brings the money, the skills, the technology, all of that to the table, there is leverage there. And I think that people are concerned, and legitimately so, that China maximizes this leverage. So the deals are not necessarily in their favor. So when we talk about 40 people who are studying at uh, in China to run the SGR – 
in, in the context of the broader SGR deal, that feels inadequate. And that people feel like we are now at risk, at very, very high risk of, of debt problems, in part because of the way that the deal was structured. And a lot of great investigative reporting is coming out now from the Daily Nation, Business Daily, some of these great Kenyan newspapers talking about the lack of transparency in the deal and the way that the deals were structured. So I guess that's where a little bit, I think the end, my anxiety goes up listening to some of the things that you're saying that are these truly sustainable deals if there is this asymmetry and if China is maximizing its leverage in this asymmetric relationship in order to ensure that it gets paid back in order to make sure that the deals satisfy them. But at the end of the day, it may not be best for the African side. And uh, Eric, if I can jump in there, um, we have to also keep in mind that that in the case of the of China's dealing with with Western and, and Japanese companies, there wasn't only the issue of skills transfer; there was frequently the issue of forced joint ventures with local partners, and in some cases, IP like intellectual property transfer. You know, so so we're talking about a higher level, like much much more radical kind of level of of kind of transfer. Uh, of knowledge than than simple training. So you're saying that the Americans, Japanese were forcing the African partner to do IP transfer. Is that what you're saying? Or that the... No, no, no. I'm, I'm no, no. I'm, I'm meaning, I'm meaning when when foreign companies uh, moved into China to to manufacture in China, that was that was the terms as that China demanded. And in and I think a lot of African countries would love to get the chance to demand those same terms from Chinese companies. They would. And so I guess. But I guess my question is, you know, Chung Chung to you here, um, African agency is something that we talk about all the time. And we're starting to see the first kind of hints of it here. So the Bagamayo port deal in Tanzania fell apart in part because the, the Tanzanians said, you know what, this isn't a good deal for us. It's a lopsided deal. And based on what we've seen uh, on the details of that deal, it was a terrible deal for Tanzania. And it was great that Tanzania stood up and finally said, you know what, we're not going to do this. This is not in our long-term interest. And I think that's actually ultimately healthy for the the long-term viability of the China-Africa relationship if we start seeing more African governments stand up against Chinese deals that are not good. And I'd be interested to get your take on this. I haven't really uh, taken a look at the Tanzania uh, deal you just mentioned. But actually, to my experience, in most of cases, I don't, I don't really feel the big China leverage that we experience. Uh, actually, f- uh, from my discussion with either Chinese ambassador to uh, Chinese ambassadors to Africa or like Chinese businessmen in Africa, the, 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 what I heard in most of cases is uh, this, they feel like helpless when they deal with uh, uh, the local partners or local governments. And uh, I I, I think maybe we can see this in this way. China is a big country. It's a huge, enormous country comparing to most of African countries. But how much effort does the Chinese government actually put into uh, its to to deal its relation with African countries? That I I I don't know. I guess it's but it would be very minimum. Uh, we have to understand, although people talk about China's like presence in Africa, I believe it's it's be very big for Africa. But how many, uh, how much proportion of this for the grand Chinese like uh, either FDI or uh, uh, foreign financial flows? 
It's still just some percentage. It's tiny, actually. I mean, yeah, th- this is uh, this is something that we've talked about over the years that China is very important to Africa, but Africa is not that important to China. That is true. I mean, and the total trade balance, Africa as a whole, fifty four countries, the total contribution to their trade to China's trading portfolio last year was zero point three nine percent. That means. And of of everything that China imported last year around the world, only zero point three nine percent came from Africa, and that means that if Africa disappears from China's trading balance sheet tomorrow, they will never know. It's a rounding error. Yes. So in order, so in this sense,、uh, if you ever visited all these、uh, Chinese embassies in Africa, they're really small. They're they're, they're tiny small、uh, embassies or the Chamber of Commerce. Representative office over there, they probably only have like for most African countries. I will say probably they have like three people deal with all this development and economic relation between China and that country. And then you 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 will have to understand for the American counterparts over there, they probably have like five hundred. For Japanese, it will be like two hundred. For UK, it will be like a hundred something like that. So the Chinese. Like China, we 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 we're trying to improve our、uh, performance in Africa, but in most of cases, we we didn't we we haven't really been able to provide that much resources on the like、uh, commercial diplomacy and public diplomacy perspective in in working with Africa. So in that sense, a lot of Chinese investors and businessmen over there on the continent they don't feel like really supported by the Chinese government, and they don't feel the leverage you just mentioned at all. I'm afraid. So let's get a quick little preview. We're running out of time now, and I know it's late for you in Beijing.、Uh, where do you see the China-Africa economic relationship going in the next few years? And take into account. That the U.S.-China trade war is not going to end anytime soon. So how how does this all fit together? When you're going to write your next column for People's Daily, or when you talk to Chinese or African stakeholders and they ask you where is this going over the next few years, what do you tell them? Well, I will say the the China-U.S. trade war has a very big impact on Africa,、uh, but it's、uh, we have to say it in the short and midterm. Uh, way and the long term way, in the short and mid term perspective, it might be good. We see we have already witnessed a huge growth of trade、uh, investment,、uh, everything between China and Africa last year, and、uh, I believe in the next five to five,、uh, four to five years, we will continue to see that growth, and we have seen a lot of Chinese companies trying to outsource and pull their production. Capacity、uh, offshore to Africa to avoid the twenty five percent tariffs uh, uh, put uh, by America. That's a short and mid term way, but in the long term way, I don't, I don't, I don't have a very good feeling for Africa in the midst of the U S China standoff. Simply because,、uh, I think it's maybe we can get to the conclude that the China U S relation will never come back. To the honeymoon anymore? If there was ever a honeymoon,、uh, so in that sense, any country will feel unsecured, feel threatened by the top one、uh, 
the economic power in the world, right? So the logic way would be firstly consolidate our friends and neighbors, our neighboring regions. So in that sense, you 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 can understand why the RCEP, uh, the ASEAN-led uh, regional economic cooperation uh, uh, project has been pushed so hard by both ASEAN 10 countries as well as China, uh, South Korea, and Japan. Uh, RCEP was proposed by ASEAN a long time ago, but it's never got so much support from local partners. And China is now, I, I believe China is now very much on board with ASEAN countries. And uh, the reason is simply because at least culturally and geographically, uh, geographically speaking, ASEAN, uh, Southeast Asia is much closer to China. And facing the China-US trade war, I don't know if it's a trade war anymore. I never li liked the idea of the trade war because the question has never been trade. Uh, China perhaps will want to consolidate our friends and neighboring countries in the Southeast Asia. In that sense, you can see uh, the capacity uh, of industrial production, uh, the FDI, the VC uh, tech investment, all this PE investment uh, holding, all this fund, they're flourishing into Southeast Asian. Uh, in the first six months uh, this year, uh, the Chinese investment to uh, Vietnam almost got to six times bigger than last year. Can you believe that? Six times bigger. So it's went crazy uh, how Chinese uh, investors uh, see uh, the 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 coming threat from the U.S. and if they have to move offshore, uh, I do believe now their top choice would be uh, Southeast Asia instead of uh, Africa, and that will be a big problem for Africa, because what Africa needs the most is not just uh, money or loans or whatever. Africa needs most is one the capacity, the industrial capacity. And second of all, the experience how to do those industrial capacity. And both of them will be uh, influenced by the U.S.-China trade war. Chung Chung is the chief economist at the Made in Africa initiative and stayed up very, very late for us to join us from Beijing, China, for his insights on the China-Africa economic relationship in academic circles and certainly in policymaking circles around China. And with various African governments, he is... Uh, very well known, and we are very, very excited and, uh, to have had the opportunity for you, Chung Chung, to share your insights with us and our listeners today, uh, particularly from an insider's Chinese point of view. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobus. Kobus, I think the most interesting point of the discussion today with Chung Chung came from me at the end of our discussion. And I think he dispels this idea and this fantasy that a lot of the Chinese manufacturing or any meaningful amount of Chinese manufacturing is going to make its way to Africa. Uh, I think that's a pipe dream. I don't think it's going to happen. I think there will be some, there'll be a little bit, primarily for the African market, but Africa benefiting from the downturn in Chinese manufacturing uh, is just, I think it's it's not realistic. And in part by what he said, which was six times the investment this year is going into Vietnam and into Southeast Asia. That's where the Chinese are offshoring their manufacturing. The fact is that 
shipping it all to places like Africa is costly. It's culturally distant. It's, you know, the regulatory issues are, are immense. And it's just not, I don't think it's going to happen. And I know we've talked a lot about this over the years, but hearing from Chung Chung, uh, that validation to me was very interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, for me, the, the idea that, that Africa would be kind of kick-started into economic development by outsourced Chinese jobs always smacked a little bit of a fantasy anyway. Um, I think the reason why... You know the, the reason why it's possible for for Chinese investment into Vietnam to to increase so rapidly is because of two or three decades of work that had gone into building Vietnamese capacity beforehand, um, and you know so some of that work was industrial development and and things like electrification, but a lot of it was also to do with like kind of getting the you know doing the having the training wheels on of intra ASEAN trade, um, and it, it seems to me that that. It's, it's, it's less about the issue about whether Chinese jobs are going to go to Africa now and more the issue of whether Chinese jobs are going to go to Africa in like 2035. You know what I mean? Like, you know, kind of Africa is going into a process that mimics what ASEAN went through in the 80s you know, um, of large-scale electrification, like intra-region trade, uh, cross-border integration. Um, and all of that is, you know, demonstrably happening. Um, but, you know, Africa doesn't seem to me to be ready to absorb those that kind of investment and that kind of offshoring now, even if it were coming. I think there's less chance that there'll be Chinese jobs in 2035 that will go to Africa than there are today. And in part because I don't think mm. the Chinese will... Because of automization. There we go. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, automation, all of that. The Chinese, remember, have a, a gun to their head, a very similar demographic gun that the Africans have. So African has this, is going to have this massive population boom over the next 20 years in about 300 million people. And China has the reverse problem. It is going to be shrinking dramatically, and its labor force is shrinking. And in order for it to keep up its productivity, it's going to need to keep output up. And with fewer people, that means more machines and robots will be doing things. So that means less need to outsource its manufacturing if only one guy is pressing a start button and it makes all the flip-flops that we need. So that, I think, is is probably the trend line on, as to where it's going. Wanted to get your take a little bit on... The question of the asymmetry that, that I tried to raise. And uh, and it's this idea that he did point out in the discussion that a lot of African stakeholders are coming to the negotiating table with the Chinese not knowing anything. Um, he didn't really kind of dive into it. And again, there might be a lot of reasons by it, but I think Chinese stakeholders do take advantage of that. Uh, I do think that there is an asymmetric relationship. It's not a fair, balanced relationship here. When one side has all the money and all the resources and another side lacks knowledge and doesn't have any money and any resources, you're not equal partners. What was your take on uh, on that part of the discussion? Um, as, as a whole, you know, I, I can definitely see that problem. Um, on the other hand, I think in, in some cases, it's an overstatement to say that Africa doesn't have resources, because in many cases, Africa has, for example, raw resources, you know, kind of that, that, actually, that people actually do want. Um, so African governments do have trump cards. Um, they don't come to the table completely empty-handed. What I think they do come to the table with is with a lack of capacity, um, particularly in terms of knowledge, but also, also you know, not only knowledge about China, but also, also sometimes I think, you know, experience in, in this kind of international deal-making. Um, 
and that you know that that can that can be improved um it takes a while to do um but i think that the fact that the fact that so many africans are studying in china that that alone is going to is going to over time you know affect that lack of capacity um i think what is also an issue though is is for african governments to really to have kind of integrated and very well developed sets of priorities and kind of development plans um to know really what they want you know not only out of the the one specific um, deal that they're negotiating but how that deal should fit into a wider plan that i think africa has gotten a lot better with i mean there's, still, there's obviously a lot more that they can do but i mean this is now a continent that has something like you know agenda 2063 very detailed like laundry list of things they want to get you know achieved in in various areas of development in lots of in lots of kind of sub clauses you know the, the, at least we now like kind of a, a few years into the continent having that conversation with itself which already helps a lot and then of course the continental free trade agreement and to your point about capacity building uh, there is a new generation of young negotiators who are coming up through the pipeline getting phd's in places like beijing uh, Shanghai, in London, and, and elsewhere. And so I am quite optimistic, actually, in the near-term future for the talent that's coming into a lot of the governmental pipelines across the continent. So I think that will be uh, a, really something to look forward to. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Hey, everybody, if you want to kind of follow what we're doing, uh, we also have this fantastic newsletter that we push out now every Friday uh, Kobus and I put it together. We put a week in review of the top stories where we filtered through everything that you need to know and kind of push away all the propaganda, the copy-paste stories, and everything else that you don't need to know. Uh, go to our website at chinaafricaproject.com and you can enter your email. It's free and you can get it uh, right there. Uh, so we would love to have you part of that community as well. And then, of course, you can follow us on all the social channels and we'll have the addresses for that at the end of the show. So for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>